Good morning, church. I just want to invite you to uh, pray with me. Yeah, Father God, we thank you that we can be here with you this morning in this way, sitting in the, the company of friends. And Lord, as we open your word to some familiar verses and passages, uh, we just invite your spirit to open up our eyes to see them differently, open our hearts to receive from you today what you have for us. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in a love of you. Make that so, Lord Jesus. And God, may the words that come out of my lips be edifying and glorifying to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome this morning. How many of you learned an instrument growing up, whether piano or guitar? A few of us, maybe. Yeah. So um, I remember growing up and taking music lessons, and you always begin in music lessons with the basics. So you spend hours and hours running scales, be it on the piano or the guitar or some other instrument, with the hope that you become well-versed in the basics, the essentials. You'd even go further back. My daughter at home, I'm trying to teach her middle C on the piano. She'll walk up to the piano and go, middle C, and she'll just hit a random key. And So we're working on it. One of these days she'll get it. But as we grow as musicians, we look back at our experience of learning the basics, and we see it as so essential to us becoming the types of musicians that we want to be. I can think of so many different times where I've been playing music live, and I go back to some of these basics. It's key. It's fundamental. Well, in these first three weeks here um, during this sermon series, it's our hope to reorient us around some of the basics of what it looks like for us to know Jesus, walk with Jesus, and share Jesus. This fall, we want to orient all of us around this word, with. And with is such a simple word, right? But it speaks so much to the reality of a God who is with us. Of a God who invites us to be with him. And throughout this COVID pandemic and this past season, there's been so much calling for our attention. There's been so much demanding that we, we focus on this, that, or the other thing. Decisions have had to be made. Transitions have had to be made. We've been pivoting left, right, and center, it feels. But in the midst of it all is our loving God and Father wanting to be with us. So in our hope to kind of orient us around some of these fundamentals, uh, we're going to spend these first few weeks of our fall uh, looking at some of the basics of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, last week, Pastor Norb uh, took us through the Great Commission, and this week and next week we'll be looking at the Greatest Commandment, Part 1 and Part 2. The Greatest Commandment is an overly f- familiar passage, isn't it? And the context in which the greatest commandment is given is very interesting to me. In the New Testament, we have the greatest commandment recorded in both Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And this morning we had it read for us in Matthew. And the setting that's going on in this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees are looking to trap Jesus. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's gaining and growing in popularity. People are liking him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not like this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves were kind of enemies against one another. But here in Matthew 22, they team up hoping to trap Jesus. 
They want him to say something that's going to cause the crowds to not like him. Or they want him to say something that's going to cause the, the, the governing authorities to say, yes, we should rightfully put away with this Jesus of Nazareth. But when they come to Jesus, they ask him this question of what is the greatest commandment? And as Jenna said so well in our kids' spotlight, um, there are a lot of different commandments in the Old Testament. 613. 248 of those commandments we could say are positive. Do this, do this, do this. 365 of those, negative. And because there's 613 and we can get kind of confused about what it might look like to live out these 613, the Jews also had a document called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there were 1,500 other commandments that helped clarify these 613. So when you have thousands of commandments coming from God, it seems, how do you make sense of all this? And I think at the heart of their question is this idea of, you know, if, if we're looking to find out what the greatest commandment is, we're looking to know, you know, what is, the, what is the key to life? How am I supposed to live life in the best way that, that, I, that I can? How am I supposed to live life in a way that, that honors and glorifies God? What is the good life? <laughs> That's a pretty relevant question, isn't it? What's the meaning of life? In fact, in Luke chapter 10, the greatest commandment comes to us in a response to the question of, Teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? We want to know that answer, don't we? Our culture wants to know that answer. How much more during this pandemic season, when so much of our lives are disoriented, So many plans have been canceled. So many things have been met with disappointment after disappointment and frustration after frustration. We begin to ask questions like, how am I supposed to move forward out of this situation? How am I supposed to move forward in my relationships with friends and loved ones who we can't seem to have a charitable conversation with one another anymore? How do I get out of this? How do I return to the good life? And friends, I think that Jesus' answer to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees would be the same answer that he would give to us if we came to him with these questions. How does Jesus answer? Well, Jesus answers them with a quote. He answers them from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. And Jesus is quoting the Shema. And this is what the Shema says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. This commandment to Israel, the the, the context of this word hear, it's not just let audio waves pass through your ears, but it, it implies obedience. Listen to and obey this command. The Lord your God is one. He alone is God. He is the one that we should worship and honor and praise. And how are we supposed to relate to him? Well, I want to break down the Shema just quickly, kind of word by word. And hopefully give us insight into this great commandment. Well, we are to hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And we are to what? We are to love the Lord our God. Now, this word love is not jam-packed with kind of our Hollywood understanding of love. 
This word love is not about having warm feelings inside of you when you interact with God. It's not about this emotional response to him. Although I hope that in your love towards God, there is a joy in your heart and emotion that it comes along with it. But rather, this word love, when we look at all of the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it seems that we might be able to sum up the word love um, with this whole idea of commitment. One New Testament scholar, Michael Wilkins, says that love is an unconditional commitment. Similarly, uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, he uses the word rugged commitment. It's this idea of giving yourself your loyalty and your allegiance and your commitment to another. And if this is the case, if this is what love is, obedience is implied in this, in this word love. We give ourselves wholly to another. So when God is saying, love me, he's saying, give yourself wholly to me. Your loyalty, your allegiance, and your commitment. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the beautiful thing about Deuteronomy and where the Shema is coming to Israel is that it's part of a larger narrative arc, isn't it? God has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's established them as his people. He says to them that, that you will be my people and I will be your God. And through the desert, through the wilderness, God over and over again demonstrates his commitment to the people of Israel by providing for them all of their needs. And so when he asks for their love, really he's asking them to give back to him what he's already given to them. And this, of course, again, is communicated in 1 John chapter 3, where we read that we love because he first loved us. So we love God. And just so we're not confused about what it means to love God, God calls us to express this love to him in three capacities. The first is that we're supposed to love God with all of our hearts. Now again, when the Jews use the word heart, they aren't referring simply to an organ in their chest that is pumping blood through their body. Um, but rather, they understood it very much in the way that we do. It's kind of the center of a person. Perhaps the best understanding for heart in biblical theology is that it is the thoughts, the emotions, and the will of a person. The center of your being, your driving force. You might call it your cockpit of life. To love God with all your heart means that, that you're saying to God, Lord, I, I want my thought life to be honoring to you. I want to think about things that you want me to think about. Lord, my emotions, as I feel different things, as I go through different things in life, and maybe it's anger, maybe it's depression, maybe it's joy, maybe it's peace. All of my emotions I want to bring before you. And of course, our will, coming before God and saying, God, I, I want to do what you want me to do. I want my life to be honoring to you. I want my choices to be honoring to you. So we love God with all of our hearts. Next, we're supposed to love God with all of our soul. Now, interesting about this word soul, across commentaries, most commentators agree that soul is a terrible translation. <laughs> because when translating the Hebrew word uh, into English, we're trying to find words that accurately communicate what was being said uh, in, its original, uh, in its original language. 
So bringing the word from the Hebrew into the English, using soul is not a great translation because when we think about soul, we think about Disney Pixar's movie Soul that came out last year, right? Who, who saw Soul? It was a good one, right? It was on Disney Plus, a great movie. But in that movie, they're communicating that soul is this immaterial part of a person. That this whole idea that the body is somehow a prison for our souls and that when we die, our souls escape our body. Now, that is what it is in Western thought. Um, That's what we think when we think soul in the West. But that is not what the Bible means when it's talking about soul. The Hebrew word here for soul is nefesh. And most literally, it's translated as throat. So when the Israelites were in the, the wilderness, they had a dry nefesh. Their throats were dry. But we also see nefesh being used when it begins to talk about um, different people. So a family might be counted by the number of nefesh represented by that family. Eventually, nefesh we see becomes synonymous with this idea of a person. But more importantly, what we miss in our Western definition is that soul is about the whole person. Your whole existence, even your body. In the Old Testament, when we read about nephesh, we see that there can be a dead nephesh, a body that is, is laying on the side of the road. There is a dead nephesh. So where in the West we think soul, we think immaterial part that has nothing to do with our bodies, that's not what the Bible understood soul to be. Rather, it is this whole person, all of who you are. So if your heart is your emotions, your thought life, and your desires and your will, we look at soul and we see in that that it's kind of everything else. (laughs) The heart, in a sense, is driving that soul. Theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard goes as far as to say that our soul includes our social realm. This idea that who you are is part of who you are has been been brought up in the context of social relationships. And those social relationships have shaped and formed you. So, so Alice Will goes as far to say that, that those relationships are a part of your soul. So it's all of you. And we are also to love God with all of our might or all of our strength, depending on your translation. Now, strength or might here is not about your capacity to bench press. And I praise God for that because I would have very little might to love God with if that's what it was about. Rather, in Hebrew, the word might here means power or strength or in the highest degree. This Hebrew word mostly shows up in the Old Testament as an adverb. And a a, a familiar example of that is Genesis chapter 1, where God looks at creation and he says that it was very good. The word very there is the same word we have here translated as might or strength. If we were to translate this word um, literally, we would say with all of your very muchness, right? Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your very muchness. (laughs) Doesn't translate well into English, does it? But here what it's getting at is this idea that it's all of your capacity, all of your influence. In church circles, we often talk about our time, our talents, and our treasures. This idea of these are the resources available to us, and we give out of these resources. To love God with all of our muchness is to love him with all of our time, all of our talents, 
and all of our treasures. So let's back up and look at this Shema again, the greatest commandment. If we were to amplify it, it might read something like this. Listen to this and live out my instruction. Direct your love, which is your devotion and commitment to me. Give this love to me with your thoughts, emotions, and choices. With all of your being, including your body. And give this love to me using all of your capacity and all of your resources. It's a lot there, isn't it? (laughs) When we understand and live out this command, we see that there is absolutely nothing that we should hold back from God. We cannot say to God, God, you can have my Sunday mornings, but I'm keeping the rest of my week. We cannot say to God, God, you can have 10% of my resources, but that other 90%, I don't want you to have anything to do with it. If we live out this command, we do not look to God and say, God, I want your advice on the big things, but not on the little things. We don't say to God, God, I'll live out some of your commands, but I'm going to keep all these commandments about sexuality. We cannot say to God, God, I'll honor you in some of my relationships, but I'm going to keep all my past hurts and my wounds. No. To love God with our heart, our soul, and our muchness is to give him everything. The Apostle Paul reflects on this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All of you holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We engage in loving God as we offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. When we live out this commandment, we come to see that all of discipleship, All of knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, and sharing Jesus is about deepening our love for God. When we live out this commandment, we see that God's will for our lives is revealed to us in his word. And that we desire to know his word. We seek it gladly. We eagerly obey what God's word says to us, knowing that it leads to abundant life. When we live out this command, we see that God's word is not a drag or an infringement on our rights or freedoms. Rather, we desire God's will. We desire his plan. We long for it. And we come to be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. So this is the first part to the answer So this is the first part of Jesus' answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? Or we could say, this is Jesus' answer to the question, how do I discover the good life? How do I live in abundance? How do I live life like Jesus? Well, you love God with all your heart, your soul, and all of your muchness. And if this is Jesus' answer to that question, the The question to us that comes this morning is how are we doing? How are you doing in your love for God? 
In this past year, we've been presented with so many different obstacles to enjoying life as we desire to. Have you sought to overcome these obstacles by loving God more? I wish I could say that I have. But when I examine my life up against this challenging command to love God with my heart, my soul, and my muchness, I worry that I may not love God in the way that I think I do or in the way that I desire to. When I look at the evidences of my actions, when I look at my own behaviors, when I look at my thought life or my pursuit of comfort, I worry that I may be, it may be reflective of me loving something else with the commitment that I'm supposed to give to God. Which leads to this question. Where is my heart, my soul, and my might currently directed? Because if this is the first and greatest commandment, if this, is, if this is the direction that we need to receive to experience abundant life, we rightly assess ourselves and ask, where is my heart, soul, and might directed? What am I thinking about often? What am I giving myself to and directing my efforts towards? What am I giving my time, my talents, and my treasures to? What do you love? What do you desire? What is your honest answer to the question, what is the good life? Is it different than Jesus' answer here in Matthew chapter 22? As a Christian, I want to say that I love God first. But sadly, I may not love God as I think I do. And if my love isn't on God, I'm guilty of what Scripture calls idolatry. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus goes on to confront the Pharisees. And he accuses them of not loving perhaps what they think they love. And he accuses them of seeking out the love and praise of other people. That all that they do is just about gaining and growing in their popularity. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says, you think you love God? You just love the praise of people. And it was governing and dictating the way that they lived their lives. They neglected the poor. They kept people out of the temple from worshiping God in the way that they desired to. They put heavy burdens on people. And Jesus looked at their lives and said, you don't love God. You're experts in the Torah. You've memorized 613 commandments, but you do not love God. So if upon some self-examination, we feel that we need to grow in our love for God, how do we do it? How do we do it? Francis Chan released a, a series of videos a number of years ago called The Basic Series. And at the end of one of those episodes, he gives this great illustration. Uh, he, he gives us this hypothetical situation of him talking to his daughter. And he says, you know, if I said to my daughter, go and clean your room, and she left and came back to me and said, Dad, I memorized what you said. Go and clean your room. But she didn't clean her room. Francis Chan is annoyed. So she goes back. She leaves and then she comes back. She says, Dad, Dad, Dad. I, I know how to say go and clean your room in Greek. I've got it down word for word. But she didn't clean her room. And she, then she says to her dad, 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 Dad. I, I got a group of my friends together. 
And we're going to meet every week and we're going to talk about what it would look like if I were to clean my room, right? Like a clean your room Bible study or something, right? But she didn't clean her room. Francis Chan obviously would be very annoyed. Any parent obviously would be very annoyed. But we do this with God. We do this with God. In my journey of discipleship, I've come to learn and realize that information does not equal formation. Information does not equal formation. And when I think about my own life, I can see so many different seasons where I was chasing after some book or some conference or some podcast or some speaker, thinking that if only I can understand what this person understands, then I will love God better. Then I will be more like Jesus. But do you know what that ended up doing in me? I just ran book to book, conference to conference, podcast to podcast. But I wasn't necessarily growing in my love for God. Now, this is not a diss on information. Information is important, but it's not, information is not all that we need. We don't need less information. We need more than information. Which leads me to our discipleship framework that we presented last week. At TCC, when we think about us being a community that knows Jesus, walks with Jesus, and shares Jesus, the question might come up, well, how do we do that? And so last week, Pastor Nord presented this discipleship framework, which we've borrowed strongly from Bridgetown Church in Portland, who've borrowed it from Dallas Willard. And if you were to summarize it, we would say that in all that we do, we want our ministries and our our kind of what, what we're about to involve teaching, community, and spiritual practices by the power of the Holy Spirit over time. And what I love about this discipleship paradigm is that you can see that it's not just teaching. It's not just information that's going to lead to formation or Christ-likeness or a deeper love for God. This framework recognizes that we need more than that. And as we read Scripture, we see that we need more than that. So if we got the teaching part down, right? We all know the greatest commandment, right? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your muchness, right? So if anyone ever says strength, you say, no, 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 it's muchness. Um, You can correct them on that. So we know that. And do you know what? Atheists know that. So many people who talk about the church or Christianity, it's like, well, isn't it just love God, love others? Right? People know that. We know this. We know that we're supposed to love God. Why do we struggle so much to do it? I think it's because we just sit in the teaching. So we need to pursue practices that direct our love towards Jesus. Pursue practices that direct our loves towards Jesus. When we talk about practices within church, we need, something we need to totally understand is that all of you already have practices. There's things that you and I engage in day in and day out. There are things that we do. Every day I scroll through Facebook. That is a practice. I try to go for a run a couple times a week. That is a practice. I try to eat well. That is a practice. When I get home, I try to sit down and play with my children. That is a practice. We all have practices. Be it listening to the news on the radio or watching news late at night, getting up early to read your Bible, coming to church on Sunday. These are all practices. But what we need to understand about practices is that what we do shapes what we love. The things that we engage in direct our hearts in certain ways. 
And so when we engage in scrolling on social media, when we listen a lot to the news, if we're working all of the time and we're maybe kind of like workaholics, if we're news junkies, if we're obsessed with this thing or that, or we've immersed ourselves fully and completely into some series on television or whatever it is, all of these things shape our loves. They shape what we love. And so when we talk about developing practices that direct our love towards Jesus, it begins by us asking the question, well, what practices am I already engaging in? What are the things that I am already doing? And upon that assessment, we might see that there's things we're doing that we need to stop doing. Upon that assessment, we might look and be like, man, I do this thing way too much. And it isn't to say that practices that maybe aren't Christian, it's not to say that those practices are bad. It's to say that they might be directing our love away from God more than we realize. And when practices and and other things become our ultimate thing, that's when it becomes idolatry. We have different problems there. The Shema that we've been talking about this morning, this, this passage in Deuteronomy, This was to be prayed by the Jews day and night, in the morning and in the evening. And the passage goes on to say these words. And these words that I command you, what are the words? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your muchness. These words, they shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently. That's a practice. Talk about them when you sit in your house. That's a practice. When you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. That's a practice. You shall, they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Shema itself was a practice that oriented the hearts of Israel to a deeper love of God. And we need these types of practices in our own lives. Well, back in June, our staff at TCC met and... Um, We've been talking a lot about this and about different practices and things. I think what happens week to week is that, you know, we'll preach a sermon and the practice seems to be read your Bible and pray, right? We got these two practices. Um, But we as a church came up with a list of, this is a working list. So this isn't like the list. You guys understand? It's not the list. It's a working list. So you guys might have a lot to contribute to this. Um, But these are 11 practices And each one, you could maybe, you can't click on them. They open up to other things. But um, within each one of these is various practices that will look different for all of us. But what we've sought to do with this list is to ask the question, how did Jesus live his life? What practices were Jesus engaged in? Because I think Jesus lived out this greatest commandment pretty good, you know. I think Jesus loved God with all of his heart, his soul, and his muchness. So we ask the question, well, what did Jesus do? And those are the things that we desire to be doing. We talk a lot about silence and solitude, prayer, scripture, worship and celebration, fasting and abstinence, vocation, Sabbath, community, hospitality, justice, evangelism. And if you have questions about this, well, we're talking about all of these things at Equip uh, this fall. Um, And so I would invite you to consider joining Equip where we'll be talking about spiritual disciplines. So we need to consider practices. If our day-to-day rhythm reflects the orientation of our heart, soul, and strength, we need to consider what rhythms may need attention to. 
What rhythms, habits, or practices need removal? Which need adjustment? And what rhythms can be added? The second part of our discipleship framework, we've already talked about teaching and community, of course. uh, Sorry, we talked about teaching and practices, of course, is community. And so when we look at the Shema, I think the other piece we need to grow in a love of God is to intentionally participate in a community that calls you to a deeper love of God. And when I think about this in my own life, this is so true. Friends, we need one another to grow in our love for Jesus. We need one another to grow in our love for Jesus. In the past two weeks at TCC, we've had three funerals, three celebrations of life. At each one of these, we've heard various eulogies and and testimonies given of the lives of people who loved God and loved others, who I believe lived out these great commandments. And as I sat listening to these stories being told of men and women from our context, from our church, I was brought to tears. I was brought to tears as I thought about the example that they have set. That when they talked about characteristics of of Barry, of Faith, of Stella, I couldn't help but have this thing grow in my heart. I'm like, I want to be more like them. Man, in that way, I want to be more like Barry. In that way, I want to be more like Stella. In that way, I want to be more like Faith. And as we journey in life together, we look at one another and we consider how to spur one another on towards loving God more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives this charge to the, the, the church in Corinth. And I love this verse because this verse comes after all this division. You know, Paul's teaching about this and that and the other thing. And he gets to 1 Corinthians 11 and it's almost as if he's saying, if you're still confused about all of these other things, just imitate me. <laughs> Because I'm trying my best to imitate Christ. Friends, can you imagine our community if we labored together to love God, to spur one another on in loving God, and have a confidence to look at one another and say, you know, I I see maybe this area is hard for you, but imitate me. I'm trying to imitate Christ. And I'm going to imitate you in that area as you imitate Christ. And let's imitate Christ together and move forward. Because on the flip side, if we surround ourselves with constant community that promotes alternate loves, alternate visions of the good life, we should not be surprised when our heart, soul, and might, our muchness, is turned towards something other than God. And I can quickly think about examples in my own life where the friends that I surrounded surrounded myself with did not lead me in a love for God. They led me in other ways. We have to be careful who we keep company with. So friends, this call of Jesus, it sums up and captures so much of what it means to follow Jesus and to live life with God. And as we journey through this latest portion of the health crisis in our province, our country, our world. How can you love God more? Is it a reorientation of your practices? Is it taking time to intentionally be with others? 
And maybe it is for some of us a deeper engagement with various teaching on what the Christian life is all about and how to grow in it. So much of the disorientation of this past year that I've experienced, I wonder how much of it would have been resolved if I just would have sought to love God more. So I invite you to join us on this journey as a church. That in and out of good seasons, in and out of lockdowns and and pandemic realities, to be a community that is with God, moving forward together, to be a community that loves Him and that seeks to be with Him as we celebrate and recognize that He is with us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words that take so many different commandments and instruction and just boils it down to the one. That we would love you with all that we are. And Father, we confess to you that there's times where we're a lot better at that than others. There's times where maybe we look at our lives and we, we can rejoice that our love for you seems strong. But Lord, we're also aware of seasons in our life where maybe our love for you isn't what it should be. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would lead us into loving you more. And that it would not simply be a truth that sits in our head, something that we heard at church or read in the Bible or heard someone say once that it's important to love God. But, Father, may it seep down and be a reality of our lives. That we would live our lives giving you our commitment, our loyalty. All of our heart, our soul, and all of our muchness. Because you alone are worthy, Lord. So help us to love you. Amen.